Welcome to Evidence-Based Aesthetics, where science meets skincare. Today's skincare professionals are bombarded with sales tactics and marketing hype aimed at selling an aesthetic product or service, often with little to no scientific research to back it up. Master esthetician instructor Kristen Group and Dr. Larry Group use peer-reviewed research to investigate and discuss the latest trends, equipment, procedures, and products in medical aesthetics while poking fun at extravagant claims, as well as each other. Evidence-Based Aesthetics is produced monthly and is supplemented by Facebook, Twitter, and evidencebasedaesthetics.com. Viewers and listeners are actively encouraged to submit questions and topics for discussion. And now, your hosts, Kristen and Dr. Larry Group. Hi, I'm Dr. Group, your host, and we're back with our other two correspondents here, Bandit <laughs> and Lucy, or joining us for the day. Uh, this is another evidence-based section, so we're going to be talking about a research article done by Dr. Wanner and Associates out of Boston, Massachusetts. And this is about talking about immediate skin responses to laser and light therapy warning endpoints and how to avoid side effects. So let's put, our, put the paparazzi put our down. Friends paparazzi down. And let's get started into this. So when we talk about endpoints, clinical endpoint, um, you've talked a lot about teaching to clinical endpoint as opposed to what? Um, as opposed to... When I say that I teach to a clinical endpoint um, at our school, I'm teaching to what the clinical endpoint should look like at the end of the treatment. And when I say opposed to where I used to work, we just lowered the settings and lowered the fluence of everything and basically just mechanically went through what the treatment would be. So you would just, it was basically how to place the handpiece and move it through the area that you were treating, but there was not going to be any type of clinical endpoint because we weren't using enough fluence to get to that clinical endpoint. So although they might have a good idea of um, how to hold the handpiece, they didn't understand what the skin should look like at the end of the treatment. Yeah, and that's, I guess, another way that you could look at um, teaching this would be sort of like give people settings and have them use the settings as the absolute right and wrong and not really look at what the endpoint or what, what the condition of the skin looks like when you're done or what you're trying to get to. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of reliance on dosimetry and settings and things like that. That sort of needs to be integrated into these are great reference marks and starting points, mm -hmm. but they need to be adjusted for each patient. Well, each patient and each patient can have different skin types with one within one treatment area, depending on what you're trying to treat. They can also have um, different types of sun exposure, or they could have different types of uh, maybe medications that they're on. Or sometimes you don't even know why one area reacts differently than another area. So you have to be very conscious of what the areas of the skin look like while you're treating, what the patient's pain level is while you're treating, so then you can adjust those settings to give a um, safe and effective treatment. Exactly. All right, so what did Dr. Wanner, Dr. Sakamoto, uh, Dr. Avram, and Dr. Anderson in Boston uh, find when they're doing this? What they, they did a nice job of talking about endpoints, showing pictures of those, and associating those with particular pieces of technology. I think that's going to be really helpful in this class. So what are the key points to get out of this? The specific endpoints vary with the type of laser or other device, with the proper use of the laser, and with the histological targets involved. When we're doing the observation of clinical endpoints, it's crucial for the adjustment of the laser parameters during treatment, both to increase 
to increase efficacy and also to avoid side effects. Mm -hmm. So basically, as we're, as we're going, we're adjusting our settings as we see clinical endpoints arise. Mm -hmm. and what we're going to see from this particular uh, research is that there are some immediate responses that we can see. And then, of course, there are endpoints that take a little bit of time to develop. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the immediate responses would probably be easier to work with because we have an immediate cue of what to do. But it also gives us a sense of how much timing we need to wait, so let's say, with test spots or looking at a particular treatment area before making a decision, should we keep the same settings? Mm -hmm. A couple more key points that the researchers brought out is they, they present the clinically useful early response endpoints and their mechanisms that arise during treatment with laser and other energy-based devices in dermatology. So not only do we show what it looks like, but what happened in the skin, what physiological process happened to cause this endpoint. And then by understanding that and how these particular machines work, we can get a sense of, instead of having to be like brand specific, when we're using, let's say, any brand uh, IPL, we have a sense of when we see this clinical endpoint or this sort of uh, warning endpoint, then we need to adjust our settings. Mm -hmm. And it, it, when I work with um, any type of device, whether it's a laser or an IPL, um, and at the beginning of the treatment, one of the things that I always do is I do test spots within that treatment, even though I've treated that patient many, many times before. If you're seeing them once a month, once every couple of months, once a year, they can have a lot of changes um, within that time frame. And I use those test spots to determine whether I'm going to do the treatment, whether I'm going to increase my influence, whether I'm going to decrease my influence, whether I'm not going to do the treatment. Exactly. I think knowledge of the specific desired, either the therapeutic endpoint or the, the, the knowledge of, of an undesired warning endpoint is sort of key for the proper clinical use of great lasers in dermatology. So let's move on. Selective photothermolysis. So that's basically depending on what the prefer preferential absorption of light by histological target or chroma chromophore. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, when we talk about selective photothermolysis, and we break down the word photothermolysis, photos, light, thermos, heat, lysis is damaged. Basically, we're using a, a selected light to create damage through the absorption of the heat. So it is the kind of the backbone of why lasers work the way that they work. Um, and what we're trying to do is cause damage into our target or our chromophore. Now, this is an advanced class, so I, I assume I would hope that most of the folks <laughs> using uh, these devices understand um, SP. But some of the things to take a look at, though, are when we're doing things like type 5 and type 6 skin types, that's when we start to have sort of kind of split hairs, no pun intended, <laughs> to get a sense of what sort of endpoints are we looking for, what can we expect, and what are ways to be able to use this technology safely but still get clinical efficacy. That seems to be the challenge. It seems like without experience, you either are going to sacrifice either efficacy or safety. And I think, I think the purpose of this class and other classes is how to safely still get results in these more challenging skin types um, and still not burn the person, if you will. Yes, that's, that's pretty much always the goal is <laughs> let's do an effective result or an effective treatment. But the safety overrides every single thing that we do. If we can't do it safely, we can't do it. If you can't be effective with what you're doing, you're never going to grow your business. Right. I mean, the reason why I picked skin types five and six, so I think that it's fairly easy to teach someone how to have safe and effective results in skin types one and two. Uh, I think when we get to get, when we're going to show where, where a lot of these 
adverse reactions. reactions are coming from are going to be these darker skin types. So mm -hmm. I think what we're going to do is spend some time focusing on this particular uh, skin types, five and six, and get a sense of what are the little changes and little adjustments we can make to sort of bump up our efficacy while still maintaining uh, safety. Mm -hmm. I think that's much more difficult and much more nuanced than, say, uh, in your basic hair reduction in a skin type one or two. Okay. Also, let's say that the laser tissue reaction in the histological target produces a specific endpoint. So we're going to be showing what those endpoints are. And non-selective devices produce non-specific endpoints. I think that's something that, that's going to sort of pop up more and more as we, we talk more and more in this class is when we have a very specific wavelength and we're using it on a specific chromophore, we tend to be able to have a reproducible and very specific endpoint. When we have non-specific technologies, and when we talk about that, what, what's an example? Or when we talk about non-specific or non-selective devices, what are those devices? Are you talking about like a 1540 or a CO2 or an erbium, ones that are attracted to water? Yeah, the, the, the chromophore is water. It's just water permeates the entire skin region uh, from basal keratinocytes below that. Um, you sort of have a non-selective chromophore, right? Mm -hmm. I also would say that you're going to have a non-specific endpoint for that. And that sort of makes it more tricky because if we don't have know exactly uh, a specific thing to look for, we sort of have to be a little more on guard or have some experience on some other signs that we can look at that, that show damage is being done and possibly unwanted damage and know when to stop. So that's what this class is about is to dive into that sort of thing. The researchers spent some time discussing selective photothermolysis, and they talked a lot about target size and the, the versus the surrounding uh, tissue, mm -hmm. and that there was differential heating between the target chromophore and the surrounding tissue. I know that in your uh, some of your your teachings, you, you discuss that how um, certain things heat up faster than other things. Can you give an example, let's say with hair reduction? Well, just like any type of a, a smaller target is going to not only heat faster, but it's going to dissipate that heat faster. So I like to use the analogy of if you have a, a pot of boiling water, or you bring about a pot of water to boil, and then you get it to boil, and you take it off the burner, and you take a teacup and scoop out some water and set it down, the teacup is going to cool down faster than the pot of boiling water. So I kind of equate a teacup to being, you know, maybe skin type one, two, three, and the pot of water to being a four, five, six. So when you have a smaller target, it's going to heat up faster, just like if you were trying to heat just that teacup of water, it's going to heat much faster than the pot of water, but it's also going to dissipate that heat faster than the pot and that goes back to what our thermal relaxation time is and you have a different thermal relaxation time how much heat dissipates out of the tissue um, from a hair to a um, the skin so you've got different thermal trts for the hair and the skin but when a laser looks at both structures it sees melanin in both structures so how do you safely get the hair to absorb enough energy to make it go away but not absorb into the surrounding tissue. Yeah, and I think the magic of that, of course, is the, is the TRT, the fact that the larger hair structure, first of all, its position in the skin and its fact that the size of it, so we have like volumetry issue, um, something that's large and cylindrical, that's more like a cube and less flat, it's going to have more, less surface area per volume. Mm -hmm. um, things with a greater volume um, are going to have more of a, have take more time for the energy to dissipate. I also think that is the affinity of the chromophore. In some cases, the laser uh, wavelength absorbs better into that particular chromophore. So 
Um, if we have competing chromophores like tan skin versus dark hair, we have less of an absorption into the tan skin, but we still have some absorption. And then that goes to the choice of what wavelengths. If we know the absorption curve and the absorption coefficient, we know what the selection of, of if we have darker skin or if we have competing chromophores, we want to pick the thing that, that, that's most attracted to that particular chromophore. Well, when, when we look at the settings on the machine, and the two biggest settings you can adjust is going to be your fluence, which is the energy, and your pulse duration. Um, and when we talk about pulse duration, and, and what I teach in my classes, when somebody walks into my office and there is skin type 4, 5, or 6, the first thing that goes to my mind is formulating what pulse duration is going to be safe for their skin, because the longer the pulse duration, the safer it is for the epidermis. The shorter the pulse duration, you probably be more effective, but you're also going to be then not quite as safe. So when somebody comes in that's a skin type one, two, or three, and not knowing what their medical history is, I'm looking at them going, okay, I can use a pretty much standard pulse duration for that particular device, but now I'm going to play with the fluence to see how much energy I can use safely. So if I've got a, a lighter skin type, I'm thinking more of what is my fluence going to be. But as soon as a darker skin person walks in, I'm thinking, okay, safety has got to override efficacy. What's my pulse duration going to be? And what length does it have to be? There's also the, the rate of how that particular machine uh, delivers energy. We have you know, nanosecond pulses versus millisecond. Um, that has a lot to do with also the size of the target. Am I right on that? So like in the in tattoo removal, the target of a drop of, of, of pigment is considered to be smaller and its thermal relaxation time is considered to be shorter. So then we have a much faster rate of repetition. Whereas the hair follicle, because it's relatively so much bigger, then that's going to be uh, more of a pulse duration in, in the milliseconds as opposed to a nano or a pico. Well, when you look at, at a tattoo removal and when they first tried to do tattoo removal, they tried it with a long pulse laser and basically all they did was blister people. Um, when they got to both the nano uh, second um, machine, so a Q-switch, and then they went into the Pico second, what they found is they were using more of a photoacoustic wave to shatter that ink as opposed to a thermal energy to create damage in a hair follicle. Yeah, so a different mechanism of action that mm -hmm. comes into play with that, and that's, of course, in the physics piece of this. We're, we're talking about photothermolysis, which is not the same as photoacoustic effect. Although there are some cases where you could have photoacoustic effect and a selective photothermolysis. Am mm -hmm. I right? Um, I think that IPLs are something to discuss in this because they have a broader spectrum of uh, wavelengths. Um, the endpoints are going to be less specific. Um when we look at, so if you had, let's say, an 810 diode and you were going to um, do hair reduction on an axilla, and then on the other axilla, you're going to use an IPL device, what I would notice is the clinician, the differences would be, you would probably have with the 810 diode more hairs exploding out of those follicles than you will with the IPL. Um, it's a little bit easier to gauge sometimes your settings with a laser than it is an IPL because it is a broad range of wavelengths. But IPLs, again, will do hair reduction. You just might have to wait a few more minutes to see the clinical endpoint before you proceed with the procedure. So that would change how you would do that particular protocol. You would have a longer wait time after test, test spots. And you would also, if you were doing several passes, say, you might have some time in between passes. I, it, most of the time, you're not doing more than one pass. Okay. 
Um, usually if you've got your settings dialed in correctly, one pass is going to be enough. Got it. This episode of Evidence-Based Aesthetics is sponsored by AestheticAdvisorLaserAcademy.com. Aesthetic Advisor Laser Academy, providing ADHS-approved laser education courses and a wide range of other aesthetic courses in online, hybrid, and live formats from a state-of-the-art training facility in Scottsdale, Arizona. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about non-selective treatment devices. Again, non-selective being uh, machines that are, or the chromophores, water. Um, <laughs> These devices emit energy that is absorbed by water, and because water is present throughout the skin, these wavelengths are not selectively absorbed by specific targets in the skin. There are endpoints associated with these devices, but they are in general non-specific. So we're basically saying that since there's water throughout the tissue, there's not one particular target tissue that we can look at, like an exploding hair. Mm -hmm. Not going to happen with these types of devices. Uh, what are some uh, non-selective treatment devices? The infrared, ablative, and non-ablative lasers emitting at wavelengths absorbed by water, which are what, CO2 and... Well, you've got, I mean, at the, at the bottom end of it, you've got, um, you know, your 1410, 1440, 1540. Um, and then we go up into the 2940s, which are the erbiums, and the CO2s, which are 10,600. So basically, when we're looking at in an absorption coefficient where the water starts to peak, which water peaks of an absorption at 3,000 nanometers, so the 2940 is just off of that. But you start seeing that, that level coming up after we've gone through the 1064, then you're usually in the 1200s and above uh, to, like I said, 10,600 or a CO2 laser. Got it. Um, also included in these are radio frequency and focus ultrasonography. So in radio frequency, how is that different than, let's say, uh, all of the, the, the machines you've mentioned in the infrared ablative and non-ablative lasers? Well, it's not a laser. Okay, so um, it's, it's an electrical energy. current. Yeah, but it's an electrical current. So it's, it's a little bit different of a technology than a true laser. Got it. Um, but again, the, the target is pretty much water in this particular Correct. case, although there might be a particular tissue layer we're aiming for, uh, there's no way for it to, to not see the other water, if yeah, you will. It's going, it's going to still be going after the water. Okay. Um, they basic, these non-selective treatment devices are going to basically heat the tissue with a depth or pattern that depends on where the energy is being delivered. So what would be two extremes of that? I would say probably an ablative laser on the surface, like a CO2 resurfacing. And then ultrasound probably yeah. or microwave. So you have, you know, the, Similar chromophore water, but much different waves, much different delivery, and much different depth of penetration. Exactly. Would you say that depth of penetration means that all of the all of the layers below that are at risk of burning, or do you feel like there's a focusing of that energy, or how does that work? Um, for what machine? Let's say the ultrasound. Well, you've got you've got I mean an, an area that you're trying to target, and you're going to be setting your your parameters for that machine to get to that area. Um, so is it, could it be different on different people? Yes, because you've got different depths of skin. You've got different, you've got people that are heavier than other people. You've got areas of the face that are bonier than other yeah, areas. Exactly. So you're going to get Topography. a different, yeah. yeah, you're going to get a different reaction depending on what area of the body you're on. But in some cases, like CO2 resurfacing was designed to resurface the, the epidermis, whereas the ultrasound in many cases is designed to, um, 
target fat layers and mm -hmm. things like that. So in many cases, while there is still water in those upper layers, that energy doesn't begin to focus till it's past those layers. Correct. For the most part, there is still some th thermal overheating damage, but that's more of a residual buildup than a direct path of the beam, if you will. Correct. Okay. Another uh, subsection of non-selective treatments is going to be your ablative treatments. So we're, mm -hmm. we're kind of breaking this down now, and the, the authors have broken this down to talk about these things. Ablative treatments remove tissue by vaporizing it. So, for example, laser skin resurfacing is a classic technique that ablates a thin layer of epidermis and superficial dermis using, say, CO2 or an erbium laser. Uh, these lasers emit wavelengths that are strongly absorbed by water. So they, as you talked about on the, on the absorption curve, uh, these were designed to be at the wavelength where water peaks. Mm -hmm. So like the highest peak is 3,000, and then, then it dips back down, and then it peaks back up at the 10,600. Right. For laser skin resurfacing, the laser energy is delivered uniformly at the skin surface, and immediate response endpoints are used. So what's, that's what's kind of what we are alluding to earlier is that in this resurfacing, since the energy is delivered on the surface where we actually can see, as opposed to a deeper layer like uh, ultrasound, we can see some immediate response endpoints, mm -hmm. things that were visual cues that we can immediately react to and change settings. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, that may make it easier. Although, um, you know, when we talk about CO2 uh, technology, when we look at some of the early CO2 technology um, results and things like that, before they decided to turn settings down, we saw quite a bit of like orange peel, things like that. Well, that was more of a 100% ablative machines as opposed to a fractional. It's one of the reasons um, people have moved to a fractional uh, technology is because it didn't take 100% ablation. But when we look at a, a CO2 and looking at what is clinical endpoints, when we talk about either an RF or an ultrasound, the clinical endpoints for that is more of a heat. And so you have to have some type of a heat gun to be measuring what the heat so is in the tissue. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's not so much a visual that you're looking at your eye going, except for you can see if it gets red, it's more of what is the heat gun saying that this temperature is registering it to know whether or not I'm getting to a clinical endpoint or am I going above it or am I still below it? How does cooling work on an ablative type laser like a CO2? Are we, do we want a surface no, cooling? No, they're so, not doing anything. Okay, so it's got a smoke evacuator, suck up the plume, exactly, and that's about that's, it. And that's for the operator and the patient not to breathe in the, whatever's the, coming off the skin. Exactly. Okay. So, in non-ablative treatments, now the these are done that heat. These are done with heat, but they don't vaporize the tissue, right? So basically, when you look at they're absorbed still into water, but not to the point of ablation. So they're not as strongly absorbed as the Correct. other wavelengths. Yeah, the water in the absorption coefficient, the water dips down. So like a 1540 or a 1440 are two very popular wavelengths uh, for non-ablative resurfacing. So they're attracted to water, but not to the point of like an erbium or CO2, just kind of like a 1064 is attracted to melanin, but not as much as an alexandrite or a diode. Got it. When we look at what these endpoints are, the immediate response tends to be a coagulation or sticking together of tissue as opposed to a vaporization. Mm -hmm. um, lasers for non-ablative treatments, including fractional non-ablative lasers, emit in infrared wavelengths that are weakly or moderately absorbed by water, as you mentioned. And the non-ablative treatment devices in dermatology also include RF and ultrasonography, which can produce thermal coagulation tissue deep in the dermis or subcutaneous fat. Mm -hmm. So it looks like, in some cases, it's not always the wavelength. In some cases, like in RF, it's it's where this is being focused. Am I right? 
Yeah, it's going to be what is the, the depth that this is going to reach? Because you've got some hand pieces that are going to be more superficial and some hand pieces that are going to go deeper into the skin. Um, the author spent a little time discussing fractional lasers just for the point so they could get on to uh, you know, sort of making a complete background of thing. Basically, the fractional laser treatment is just using either ablative or non-ablative wavelengths, but um, is delivered in a pattern to produce differing differing or less damage. You'll have islands of unaffected tissue mm -hmm. surrounded by these microthermal zones. So you yes. have a, a some sort of grid or screen that delivers energy. Now, we talked in another video that depending on how many passes you make, you, you can turn a fractional and... into an ablative. Um, and, and it's one of the, the beauties of a uh, fractional treatment is before you had like a fractional CO2 or fractional um, erbium, you were basically stopped at the jawline. You weren't able to go on the neck or the chest because it took off so much tissue. And these areas are so thin in their tissue um, that you weren't able to go below You're that. saying with an ablative you couldn't? You couldn't. But so with a fractional now you can? You can. Okay. So when you look at some of the old school ablative CO2 and erbium, you'll see like the line of demarcation on the patient's jaw because they couldn't physically go below it. Um, so now with a fractional, it allows them to treat other body parts like hands or, or chest or neck and face. But again, if you make enough passes over an area, you're taking a fractional treatment and turning it into a fully ablative treatment. Let's talk about laser tissue interactions. This, these authors spent some time kind of categorizing and cataloging what happens when a particular wavelength or machine uh, interacts with tissue, what a clinical endpoint is for therapeutic, like what they were looking for, and what some warning endpoints were, where things like this was obviously the sign of either an adverse event or side effect that's going to happen or has already happened. Um, so the laser tissue interactions between a target chromophore for, or the histological target and a light source elicits a reproducible clinical response. So it's not random. It, it, over time, and that's why we do things like look at peer-reviewed research and catalog and spend time talking with other folks that have done this, is that we can get a sense of this is sort of the generality we're looking for. This is the sign, like you, you mentioned, uh, exploding hairs. You know that because when you see a student uh, doing their technique and hairs are exploding, you know from prior experience of exploding hairs that this is a clinical endpoint that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, in that particular case, that would be the therapeutic endpoint. We kind of want that to happen. Mm -hmm. As opposed to were you to see the skin turning gray, that would be a clinical endpoint. You'd probably stop the student <laughs> and say, this is the endpoint we don't want. Exactly. And all of this has to do with maybe the similar tissue interactions, but we can kind of get a sense of if we understand specifically what happened, how do we change or make changes to our protocols and settings so that doesn't happen. Uh, some of the clinical responses are suggestive of a therapeutic treatment that will result in removal or partial removal of the intended target. So in some cases, we want to remove a target. Other clinical responses are warning signs of excessive damage to the skin that result in a scar or other adverse event. So the author spent some time, we're gonna, I'm going to summarize this as opposed to reading it, talking about some, some of the warning endpoints and generalities of those. Um, they talk about specific temperatures that cells start to die or apoptose. And I think it was a magical uh, number of what, 42 degrees Celsius? Yeah. Um, that they will, these cells will go into anything above that, they're going to go into heat shock. And mm -hmm. anything above that, let's say around 50 degrees, they're going to have to go, to, go into apoptosis. Um, is, from my understanding in looking at this research, heat shock is not something that you can visually observe. 
So, but that's why it's important to do things like use the heat gun to make sure that you're, you're keeping it at, let's say in an ultrasonography, the target temperature is usually what? I honestly don't know. Well, usually like 42 degrees. 42. Well, yeah, in an RF and things right, like that, exactly. usually the magic number is going to be 42, 42 degrees. degrees. Usually, in, in a couple of reasons is one, because you can get apoptosis at 42 Celsius, but also it's still below a level where you're not going to be injuring the person. And quite frankly, if you've ever had these treatments done, once you get to like 44, 46 degrees, it's um, incredibly painful and your client will probably come off the table um, at that point. I've only had one person that ever got to 46 and, and could tolerate it. I myself was not that person. Um, so we want to get to a clinical efficacy so it works, but we want to keep it below level one because of the comfort of the, of the patient, but also because we don't want to injure them. And in some cases, if we're talking about selective photothermolysis, when we start to get these heats that climb and climb, we start to lose that selectivity and start to, to, to damage tissues around that, mm -hmm. which is obviously not what we want to do. I think there's been, the authors have spent time citing other uh, researchers who have looked at uh, energy and tissue histology, where they take a sense of, we use this much energy, how long at this temperature could we... Uh, irradiate the cell before it, it died. In many cases, what they've shown as an example was um, the cells can handle 100 degrees Celsius, but only for a thousandth of a second. So a, a quick pulse, and that doesn't necessarily denature all of the cells. However, even something as mild as 50 degrees Celsius, even in a minute or so, will denature that. So it's sort of a rate-dependent, dose-dependent thing. So the timing is everything. A lot of it has to do with, of course, pulse duration. That's why you would think that, you know, like pulse duration cutting in half of 150 milliseconds versus 100 milliseconds, that seems like such a short period of time. But to cells, it's a huge deal. Just those tiny changes in time Mm -hmm. has huge difference when it comes down to doing things. That's why I think it's probably really important that if you get a new machine or you're, you're, you're unfamiliar with a machine, uh, even if you're used to the technology, that you probably work with test spots and work with some other folks who have used the machine to get a sense of what the proper pulse duration should be for that particular device. Well, and when you talk about pulse duration and, and what is appropriate for that skin type, what we try to do is use the least amount of fluence and the longest pulse duration to get the clinical endpoint that we want. Um, you can also shorten your pulse duration, you can decrease your fluence. So when we talk about working on a darker skinned person, usually we're working with a longer pulse duration and a, uh, a smaller amount for the fluence. When we talk about working on a lighter skin type, then we're going to be shortening our pulse duration and increasing our fluence. So it's, it's you have a short pulse duration, with a um, greater number for your fluence on a light-skinned person, and you have a longer pulse duration with a um, less fluence for a darker-skinned person. Yeah, it has to do with the competing chromophores and, and relaxation. Exactly. Okay. Um, from this point, the authors spend the rest of the article um, and research talking about warning endpoints, uh, what, they, what each one looks like, naming them and showing examples. So we're gonna jump into that, start talking about each of these warning endpoints and what they mean. Uh, the first one that they discuss is called Nikolsky sign. Um, basically, Nikolsky sign is where the epidermis, <laughs> that's it right there, the Russian gang sign, very good, where the epidermis splits from the dermis. And you, you basically, it's not the most evident thing to be able to see, but what you can usually tell is by laterally pushing on the side, you'll see that separation between the two. 
Um, we're also going to take a look at, at the author's research on second or third degree burns. Um, we're going to look at things like stamping, yeah, stamping um, mm -hmm. injuries. We're going to look at things called pucker sign, uh, things like charring. Um, and then we're also going to look at um, some different tattoo removal um, interactions that have a lot to do with uh, whether or not someone's ingested, say, gold, or if, the, if you're uh, using a Q-switch laser over permanent makeup, things like that. Mm -hmm. All right, let's jump into the Nikolsky sign. Um, a little bit of background. Nikolsky sign a lot of time was used for uh, determining uh, whether or not someone had pemphigus or pemphigoid, which is a skin disease where the skin layers separate from each other uh, from a, a immune state or autoimmune disorder, not from heat. But it's the same thing. Basically, you're having the epidermis separate from the dermis in this case because of heat or thermal injury to those hemidesmosomes holding those the little anchor fibrils holding the dermis to the epidermis. Mm -hmm. um, it can be desirable in some situations. So if you're a dermatologist and say someone has a dark nevus or something like that, a lot of times, and you, you also worked with an oral surgeon who did some uh, derm work where they purposely uh, irradiated the, the epidermis, moved it away, and then hit it again with a second mm -hmm. pass. Mm -hmm. So, um, but for our purposes, unless you're a, a dermatologist purposely doing this, you don't want to see this sign. Yeah, I'm not going to be the person doing this. <laughs> right. So you, if you're, unless you're doing specific dermatological work, this Nikolsky sign in, in the event of we're doing things like laser hair removal, fractional resurfacing for the most part, uh, uh, photofacials, things like that, this is the, what you don't want to see. Um, the way that you tell uh, is basically it takes about five minutes for this to appear. It doesn't appear immediately. So that's like we were talking about very immediate responses, things like you can tell uh, with a blade of lasers. This is something that takes about five minutes for it to develop. Which it would normally in, in a treatment room, um, this is a normal waiting period for any skin type, any treatment. When you're doing any type of laser treatment, you should be doing your test patch or doing your test pulse and then waiting at least five minutes to see what the uh, clinical reaction is or the clinical endpoint. So this slide's showing, this is the author's slide talking about um, what it looks like. So what was happening in this particular case is they were, they were treating this angioma, what looks like to be an 810 uh, diode laser. Um, it's sort of a raised lesion, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when they put the handpiece down, what happened? Well, it's not flat against all sections of the skin. It's flat against the angioma, but the other sides, it's going to be probably raised up a little bit above the tissue unless they're really compressing down into it. And what they indicated, that that did not happen. If we look at the arrows, the big, bold, single arrow is the sign of what they call Nikolsky sign, where if you laterally push it from the side, your finger from the side, you could see those layers separate. And on the bottom, you can actually see a little char mark where they actually charred mm -hmm. that. Um, just off the top of your head, what could they have done differently so that didn't happen to the surrounding tissue? Uh, one thing I would have done is um, I would have used a 1064 instead of an 810. Okay. Um, but that being given, let's say I only had an 810 and I wanted to do this treatment anyways, I would have masked it off. Okay, when you say mask it off, I know that 
I know most of us know that, but let's just briefly get into what masking off is. And masking it off is I take an individual lesion mask, which is um, a special coated piece of paper with a hole in the middle of it. And the reason I like the paper ones is because it allows cold to go through because my cooling system, if I use a plastic one, isn't going to go through the plastic. Um, and then I confine the light to only the spot that I've chosen. So I would have it with that angioma coming through the center of it. And then that would limit the exposure of the light to the rest of the surrounding tissue. Couldn't we just save money and just take copy paper and cut it out, use no. that? What happens when you do that? You're probably going to um, start a little fire. <laughs> yeah, because that paper actually burns. This special uh, mask does not burn. Uh, so yeah, something to keep in mind. Don't be going and getting your little label maker and then taking a little hole punch and putting a hole punch and going, I have an individual lesion yeah. mask that doesn't work that Where way. Where do they get those, by the way? Yeah. Uh, different manufacturers okay. make them. Very good. All right, so when we're looking at this, um, we also saw a little bit of dermal whitening uh, and a subtle elevation of that big arrow there. Um, it's not very evident in this particular picture. In another view of this, you can see where it kind of turns white there. So that's part of Nikolsky's sign. You can kind of see a little, the changes in those, those two layers separating sort of makes it both raised and white. Again, if you push sideways with your finger, you would see that. And I have a picture of that coming up here for us. So the endpoint is a warning that the epidermis is necrotic and that an open wound is likely to follow with blistering, erosion, ulceration, along with an increased risk of infection, pigmentary changes, or scarring. So if you see Nikolsky sign after your test spots, you stop. stop and change your That's a stop sign. That's a stop sign. <laughs> the Nikolsky stop sign. Very good. Okay. When should we be looking for this? Well, always we should be looking for this. But specifically when they're talking about treatments of tanned or pigmented skin and with any, any visible or near-infrared laser or flash lamps, so IPL. Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing, and, and I always talk to people about, there's tanned skin and there's people who are actively tanning and they are two separate things when you're actively tanning you are going into the sun on a regular basis to get tanned that's a much more dangerous time to work on somebody when they're actively tanning whether or if they have tan skin because some people and clients that i have have they just hold pigment in their skin for i mean they can hold it for a couple of years they haven't been in the sun for a few years you can still see their tan lines so there's a little bit different both you want to be incredibly cautious on working on when you're working on any area with a tan, um, but actively tanning skin is worse to work on than people who have had a tan but haven't been in the sun in a couple of months. Yeah, because let's say they went to, in the sun two days ago, there's still some active metabolic reactions going on that you can't see that are going to interact with adding more energy. Whereas someone who has, as you say, tan skin, that sun exposure was so long ago that, that this is a much more stable, mm -hmm. tan, stable process in the cells without a lot of activity going on with melanocytes and things like that. Right. Um, another thing is if you're using high fluence or energy settings with any non-ablative device, mm -hmm. so if you're turning up your settings, you want to be looking for Nikolsky sign, okay? Inadvertent pulse stacking. What's that? It's when somebody doesn't know how to move their handpiece. <laughs> <laughs> usually happens with the student, but sometimes when people haven't been trained, they'll hold the, the, the trigger down or the foot pedal down and they'll keep firing on the same area. Um, now, you've actually done purposeful stacking. I have done purposeful stacking um, for acne and things like that, where I'm, I'm, but I'm using my cooling system um, and I'm lowering my fluence. I'm not increasing my fluence to basically increase the amount of light, not increase the amount of heat. Excellent. Um, just off, off topic, when we're talking about acne, the target chromophore is what in that particular thing? 
and porphyrins. The porphyrins, yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of folks think that it's actually the P. acne's bacteria, but in reality, it's the porphyrins surrounding that that this light is affecting. So, yeah, a whole other class. A whole other class. When people <laughs> say I'm, I'm I'm creating enough heat to kill the bacteria, they put they have to put their face in an autoclave to do that, and that's not what we want. That'd probably be a really bad sign. Yeah, it would be. I think the last thing that the, that the authors uh, stress is that uh, inadequate cooling is going to be something that if you, you're using cryo spray or you know that your cooling system isn't what it should be or you're not happy with it, be looking for Nikolsky's sign because that's going to be the first obvious sign that your cooling system isn't working. Yeah. And, and back in the day, we used to keep our ultrasound gel in the refrigerator and people would try to use that as a cooling device. Cold ultrasound gel or room temperature ultrasound gel is not a cooling device. Um, once you apply that to the skin, within a matter of moments, that gel is going to be body temperature. So please don't think of your ultrasound gel as part of your component cooling system. It's really not. It's just glide. It's for just the most it's, part. it's glide, and it's to again make sure that your handpiece gets wiped off properly. The authors uh, wanted to put this uh, little little story in here. Basically, um, this is a picture of Nikolsky sign after the skin's come off. Basically, they did a treatment with a non-ablative laser mm -hmm. and the, they waited about 20 minutes. The patient went into the bathroom, washed their face and off came the epidermis. Um, I think they would have seen, probably if they pushed laterally, would have seen that. But if you kind of look at that, imagine the, derm the epidermis back in place. It doesn't really look like she got burned so much, right, right away. It wasn't like an immediate charring, but yet that's going to be a super necrotic burn. Well, and, and it's also, you'll have a lot of weeping at this point. I mean, what they were probably trying to treat were some of the little fine lines around the upper lip. And it looks like they did probably two to three um, I'm not sure how many times they stack their pulses, but I can see three um, circular areas where they touch down. Um, so even though it is considered, in the 1540, is considered non-ablative, depending on what your fluence is and depending on how many times you step on that foot pedal, um, you can create uh, an adverse reaction from it. So when people say, oh, well, 1540 is great for all skin types, um, you have to think about, is this going to happen? Are you going to hyperpigment somebody? Any machines that we're using is going to increase some type of heat in the skin, unless it's we, like a tattoo laser. We exceed the thermal relaxation time. If we stack it too close together, the residual heat's still there. And just, just all overall thermal damage by just that much heat going in. Yeah. And when I've seen this happen with this wavelength, it's usually from stacking the pulses. In some cases, uh, as we mentioned, the Kolsky sign can be a desired third therapeutic endpoint. I would say probably ablative resurfacing. You're probably mm -hmm. looking for the epidermis to slough off. After the first pass of laser resurfacing, it's often present, and then they sort of remove the epidermis with a sterile gauze pad, and then they, uh, they allow for a deeper penetration. If you didn't remove that epidermis, then you would sort of be firing through uh, dead tissue that was sort of almost possibly burned the, the deeper layers. So that's why it's important to remove that first layer. Again, I don't think any of us, unless you're a dermatologist specifically doing this, is going to come in contact with a time when it's appropriate to do that. Well, derms, plastic surgeons, things like that, people who are trying to uh, do a laser ablation. Uh, yeah, I can ablate. Like, I guess, let me restate that. Unless you were doing a purposeful ablative procedure, you, you don't want, want the Nikolsky no. sign. Okay, really good. Um, 
So I have a picture of how to sort of get it, the, the method to elicit or the way to, to, to see the signs. Best elicited by applying lateral pressure with a thumb or finger pad over a bony prominence, if there's one. Okay, the results is a shearing force that dislodges the upper layers of epidermis from the lower epidermis. And it's considered to be a positive sign if the upper epidermis separates from the lower. So you're just kind of pushing against the side. If you see the layers actually separate from each other, that's what you're looking for. If that's what you're looking if for. If that's what you're looking for, right. But again, if we know to look for those things, we start to see evidence something looks a little bit funny. And then instead of just saying, hmm, that looks kind of funny, if we were to stop and push and, and make that actually elicit, we would, we would probably know well, perfectly by looking at Nikolsky's sign. That's a repeatable, reproducible thing that we've actually necrosed the skin, the epidermis. Well, and, and not only that, when I do treatments on my patients, as I move to different areas on their body or several times throughout that, that entire treatment, I'm getting feedback from them on their pain levels. If it feels too warm, what are they feeling at this time? So I'm constantly monitoring the entire treatment. I don't just do my test spots at the beginning saying, okay, what's your pain scale? And then that's what I expect them to have through the whole area. Because if you go on somebody's um, shin bone or you go into a bony area, they're going to have more heat that's created. So you, you want to make sure that you're checking in with your client um, throughout the treatment. Great. I think that's enough from Nikolsky's side for now. We're going to move on to second degree, third degree, and stamping burns. Keeping in mind that Nikolsky sign, in many cases, will turn out to be a second degree burn. Correct. It just hasn't shown yet. Well, now we're actually going to show something that's a very obvious uh, second degree burn starting out much sooner than you would see Nikolsky sign. So second degree and third degree and stamping burns correspond to injury because of the failure or misuse of skin contact window, cooling, or the use of incorrect device. So let's talk about the stamping window cooling aspect. What happens in that particular scenario? Um, well, you can have somebody who, instead of, as they're pressing down and the, the handpiece is uh, contact cooling, so instead of pressing down and then firing, you can have people who get out of rhythm and are pulling up and firing, so they're firing above the skin, or as they're pushing down, they're stepping on the foot pedal or pulling trigger before it hits the skin. So you want 100% contact with that cooling system onto the skin before the energy is delivered. So if it comes before it or as you're lifting up, then you're going to be getting heat, but you're not going to be getting cooling. Great. Now this is an older case that the, the researchers showing, but it's basically uh, a burn, a secondary burn with blistering with the use of a, a 755 Alex for the treatment of a deep unresponsive port wine stain. What's your response to that particular? Shouldn't injury? have used it. It's, it. You don't use an Alex for for a port wine stain. The, the chromophore of its absorption in water is not going to be there. A better use um, or better laser would be a pulse dye laser. So, what are the warning endpoints of second and third degree burns? Some of us know this already, but I think we should just go over it just because we're talking about each of the clinical endpoints. Obviously, severe pain. We've talked about that before. If the client is in some, you started the treatment, they weren't in severe pain, and all of a sudden they are. Then you could, in one of the, one of the and I remember all of the adverse reactions I had at the beginning of my career, and I learned from those, and I teach with those, and I was working on a woman, and I was doing um, hair reduction on her upper lip and her chin. And it was her third treatment. My fluence was not too high. Um, she said, ow, one time. And guess what? That's where I left a perfect 10 millimeter circle burn on her. And I thought, gee whiz, I did the whole upper lip and I did the chin. One burn right there, why? 
And this was back in 2004. And so, or maybe 2003. And it was, it was kind of like, why would she burn in one spot? Why wouldn't it have been, if it was the fluids, it would have been the whole area. If it was sun exposure, it would have been the whole area. What was that one area? And what I realized is when I removed her makeup, I did not remove it well enough right here. And makeup is pigment. These machines are seeking pigment. Whatever pigment they find first is what's going to take the absorption. So if you've got pigment, whether it's a self-tanner, which is the worst thing to try to work on, or makeup, that's what's going to take the absorption. So all that heat is created in the top of the epidermis, which means you're going to have a burn. Um, so when your client says, ow, really loud, what you should be doing is, is stop Stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and roll. Um, <laughs> stop what you're doing and and get some feedback on is that just one little spot because she's a little bit sensitive or she's um, on her period or if it's a guy just because they tend to be babies uh, during treatments, why is that, that one little area? And I had a student one time who asked me if they noticed that there was a burn, couldn't they just turn down the fluence and continue the treatment? And the answer is no. Um, that's a really, really bad idea because there's something that made them create a blister at that fluence. That's when you stop the entire treatment and you try to manage what you've already done. So that's an excellent point that we haven't talked about yet. So you're saying that based on your experience, once you've reached one of these warning endpoints and you've noticed there's some, some sort of adverse reaction or injury, rather than readjusting and continuing on, you stop the treatment right there and call it a day. Yes. I think that's important. If you're a practice manager, you're a medical director, you're someone that owns the practice, I think that would probably be a good policy to have in place that says, um, we're not experimenting with humans. We, we do the best we can to get the, the settings right. But in the event we get the settings wrong, uh, it's time to, to put an end to that. Because let's say, the, let's say that we get the, the settings wrong and then we get them wrong the second time. What does that show to the patient? What does that show to, let's say, an attorney? Negligence. Negligence. You already know it's you burned them, so now I'm going to trace you my experiment and burn you again. And and I worked on a case where they burned the one arm, and then they went after the seven, second arm that they also burned uh, because of negligence, because she noticed the burns on the first arm. If, if you have an adverse reaction, you immediately stop the procedure because it's much easier to manage a very small area of, of burns or blisters than it is a very large area. So you always want to be, again, I mean, severe pain. If, if you do hair reduction and out of a scale of one to 10, they're at an eight. They could have sun exposure that they haven't ex, um, disclosed to you. They could have self-tanner that you might not realize. They could be on some type of medication that is making them um, more photosensitive. There's lots of different things that can happen. So we want to use um, our feedback from our clients to help determine what our settings are going to be. The authors start talking about some other signs, things like intense erythema, obviously, if we saw. Well, it is, this goes to in, a couple of months ago, um, we had somebody come in uh, for a treatment and I was training and we were going to do hair reduction as one of um, our daughter's best friends. And it was his birthday over the weekend. This is a Thursday. His birthday was on Sunday. They had a pool party. He's telling me that, you know, he hasn't had, um, you know, he wore sunscreen, put it on judiciously, blah, blah, blah. I do two test spots. Um, and 15 minutes later, I could see the exact same shape and size of my test spot. And you mean it was red? It was red. Okay. So it's erythema. 
and it's a rectangle. It is the exact same shape and size of my test spot. What that showed me is, um, one, if I continue with this treatment, I'm probably going to, because I was doing his chest and abs, which is a very large area, the likelihood of burning him is going to be really, really high. Um, and so to go ahead with the treatment, I'm not doing him any favors because I'm going to possibly burn him. He's living in Arizona. He's going to go into the heat as soon as he walks out of my office. So at that point, even with the test spots, I chose not to continue with the treatment because this is, this is a cosmetic uh, procedure. This isn't life or life death. Or death. Okay. Yeah. Now, the funny side of the story is for the last month, he's looked like now that the rest of the hairs grow back in, because the hairs did fall out in those areas, it looks like 40 year old virgin, where he's got <laughs> man the old answer. Yes, and then he keeps telling her daughter, um, that look what your mom did to me. Awesome. <laughs> so, but you know, I here's the thing is, I would rather have somebody go away upset with me than go away with me upset with me with blisters. Exactly. A couple other uh, signs of a second or third degree burn is the epidermal splatter. Basically, pieces of the epidermis uh, kind of coming up from the skin and attaching to the, the handpiece window. That's different than saying the hairs attaching to the window. If you actually see part of the skin attaching to the, you the really need window, to stop. You got an issue. Yeah, and then you've got you've got sometimes you will see a blistering. Um, one time I was doing an an alar vessel on the side of the nose, and when I stepped on my foot pedal, the skin immediately turned gray. It was a gray little circle. That means that it's going to be a blister, and that's when you stop. Um, you can have also edema. And, and I notice a lot of edema, I mean, it, and edema is different than PFE, which is perifollicular edema. That's a clinical endpoint we're looking for in hair reduction. When I see edema, that's the shape of my handpiece or the size of my handpiece. That's an indication that if it doesn't go away in 15 minutes, that there's something wrong and I shouldn't either be doing the treatment that day or I need to readjust my settings. So you're saying in perifollicular edema, you're going to see edema around the hair shaft in a pattern. but. The local edema that has to do with probably a uh, warning endpoint is the shape of the handpiece or darn close to it. Uh, that's different. That's not what you're looking for. Correct. And um, we can show pictures of, of sure. uh, PFE also. Um, here's a picture of what's called a stamping epidermal burn. What happened here, Chris? Well, this is like what happened to Chris's leg when I did something stupid. Um, and what happens is you can see the hairs almost on the surface of the skin and they picked up those hairs. Now it's, it's carbon on the bottom of the handpiece and now they're going to fire it through a dirty lens. And when you fire through a dirty lens, the chance of burning them is almost 100%. So again, you want to make sure that you're always working with a clean handpiece. And by the way, this doesn't mean to turn the laser around and look at the handpiece while it's on, okay? Anytime you turn that handpiece up and you're going to look at the through the, the shell tip or through the sapphire crystal, you want to make sure the machine is off so you don't misfire on your eye, um, which would be another adverse reaction in a different uh, area. But you always want to be working with a clean handpiece before I use any handpiece. Um, if I'm working in a, in a clinic that has other practitioners, I actually clean my handpiece off before I do the treatment because I'm not sure if the person before me did. Skin cooling, that seems to be uh, one of the major themes in, in things going wrong and one of the, uh, the reason why these warning endpoints come up. Um, we, we've talked about this in, in other parts of this course, but when it comes to skin cooling, there's sort of like a couple different ways to do this, right? We have uh, the type that's built into the machine or an active cooling system. Um, we have 
uh, like a Zimmer, a secondary machine that we can attach. Oh, it's called cold coarse air, or you have cryogen. Cryogen or some other external cooling agent being applied. Mm -hmm. Of the three, obviously, the if it's functioning properly, um, the active built-in cooling. Contact cooling is the easiest to work with. Now, you've worked with some machines uh, that have, were supposed to have or did have a cooling system built in, but didn't operate so, so much. Like it took, let's say, two minutes for the cooling system to engage. Yes, um, and I told the manufacturer that was a problem. And one of the things that I teach every single student, and I highly suggest you watching do this, is if you are using, a, before you fire your laser, you need to make sure your cooling system is working properly. And if you have contact cooling, what I do is I take the handpiece and I put it on the inside of my gloved hand and I feel for the cooling. If it doesn't feel cold, there's something wrong. So some machines can actually, you can go into the settings and turn the cooling system off. Um, and that happened to me before somebody had turned it off before me and if I hadn't touched it down on my hand, then I would have ended up burning my client because I didn't know the cooling system was off. So just a safe practice in, in your own clinic is if you're using contact cooling, have the clinician touch to the inside of their gloved hand. Don't have to put on their skin because I got to clean the handpiece inside of their gloved hand, make sure it feels cool. If you're using cryogen, make sure the cryogen is spraying and that the canister is full. If you're using a Zimmer or some type of forced cold air, you want to make sure it's blowing properly. Because this is an advanced class, let's talk a little bit about times when you'd want to turn the cooling system off on, say, a platform machine. Um, the only time people really turn the cooling system on off is if they're working on some facial vessels and things like that, okay. because cold is going to be a vasoconstrictor, and maybe they don't want the cooling at 100% or maybe they've got a very light skin type and they've got something that's a little bit more stubborn or resistant, maybe it's some pigment and things like that, and you want to create a little bit more heat. Um, it's always going to be more risky when you turn the cooling system off. Uh, one of my machines has the ability to go from 50 to 75 to 100% cooling. I've never worked with it below 100% because I think there's a huge value in providing a very, very safe uh, treatment, and that includes the cooling system. If the machine doesn't have a cooling system, I personally wouldn't work with it, or I would buy a uh, cooling system that was a standalone and put it with the treatment. Got it. Um, let's talk about... The importance of uh, visual, visually on this particular slide, they took some uh, pig skin, and let's talk about the importance of, of why cooling is so essential. So, if we look at the slide, what is it showing, Chris? In one area, they they fired it without cooling and burned it. Yep. In another area, they the same settings. Yep. Properly cooled it, and it didn't burn. So, um, in a lot of cases, it's operator technique, but as well as 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 the the, the system working. So, in an actively cooling system, assuming it's working. Um, you'll be in good shape, right? Assuming you have the, the proper hand placement and that things not rocking or you're not over it or things like that. Yes. Um, cooling, I mean, out of, when I look at all the features of a machine, when I'm investigating what I want to use or new technology that's out there, one of the first questions I ask is what is the cooling system and, and how, how effective is that cooling system? Because as these machines are putting heat into the tissue, you need something to counterbalance it and that's cold. So by working with a cooling system, you're going to start to mitigate your risk of an adverse reaction. How about too much cooling? Does that ever happen? Yeah, it does. Um, and it, it's called a cryoburn. Um, so this is from uh, cryogen. 
and you get like a, a white frost onto the skin then usually that ends up turning into kind of a brown pigmented mark and where we've seen it a lot is um people who are using the cooling uh, the cryo before and after the pulse usually we recommend you either do one or the other so you either use the cryo before or after um, when you use it before and after and you've got a longer burst then the chance of creating it's like almost like a little frostbite on the skin and then it tends to pigment and then it usually will slough off but we don't want to leave marks on people um, for any reason and where we've seen a lot of these is in um, Asian populations that are having their underarms lasered we'll see more cryo burns. Um, this is a picture of earlier of that Nikolsky sign but it's also kind of talking about with a cool window they, they talked about cold window devices or an active cooling system. Mm -hmm. The poor contact with the skin is, is one of those operator-dependent problems that can cause skin burns immediately after exposure. So in some cases, you can have a properly functioning uh, active cooling system, mm -hmm. but if you don't have the... If you don't have it down on all four corners, the whatever corners lifted up, or if you... We call it rocking a handpiece. So if you took your handpiece and you had it flush against the skin and you rocked it back and usually they rock it back because they're trying to peek and just like in golf if you peek you won't like what you see um, you don't want to rock the handpiece back because now you've got um, heat on the front end of it and cold on the back end of it and then you can create almost like a half moon little shape of um, pigmentation or a burn. Which brings us to crescent moon shaped injuries. Um... This is a picture of a case that you worked on. Yes. Um, what am I looking at? And basically, what's the story? Pretty much what you just explained, yeah? Yeah, this person, the problem that they had, they had, um, the, the device was being cooled, but they were using affluence that was appropriate for a skin type three on a skin type very high four to five area that had recent sun exposure. Um, but the same handpiece and you can notice the differences in the, um, the spots, and that's because they were rocking their handpiece also, so they weren't getting cooling on the whole area. Got it. Let's talk about skin shrinkage as a sign of dermal injury. A lot of times when we talk about skin tightening, that really is uh, skin shrinkage, but just to a what extent. Uh, I think that when we're talking about things like uh, ultrasound uh, or RF being used uh, to tighten areas, uh, we're, we're expecting some skin shrinkage if you will when we talk about skin shrinkage it's the collagen that's shrinking mm -hmm. so that, that's the, the the if you will the target molecule uh, that we want collagen to denature so what happens is it goes from one conformation if you're into biochemistry you have what's called quaternary structures tertiary and quaternary protein structures and some of them are coils and some of them are sheets and when you add heat to denature or break the bonds they will change shape well, in the case of collagen, when you expose it to heat, usually I believe it's 70 degrees Celsius, if I'm right, um, what you'll get is a conformational change where it will turn from a helix to a coil and, and, and very basically contract. Kind of like taking a piece of bacon and putting it in a pan and so much smaller <laughs> when you're done cooking it. <laughs> yeah. In many cases, when we have an immediate shrinkage of the dermage, it'll be seen elevated as well. We're going to take a look at some ways that we can see this. In some cases, like we mentioned, we, we actually want this to happen. Um, that's one of the intended uh, effects of doing something like a fractional skin tightening. Mm -hmm. We're actually hoping to have areas where the collagen is going to shrink up and tighten the skin along with it. Um, that's not a permanent thing, correct? That's going to... It's going to relax. It's going to relax again as new collagen is replacing that collagen. 
Also, in some cases, as an immediate clinical endpoint for ablative lasers, when we're going fairly deep and resurfacing, we actually want to see that skin shrinkage immediately. So that's a clinical endpoint for those who are doing things like, a, say, a plasma resurfacing. Mm -hmm. So that's another time. Uh, but in many applications or in the applications where dermal injury is not wanted, if we see immediate shrinkage, that's a pretty bad warning. And it's an endpoint that the clinician should look at and sort of stop, drop, and roll again is reassess is when we see shrinkage, we have to stop. What does it look like? And when, when don't we want it? Well, in many cases, it shouldn't be seen during non-ablative laser procedures. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a non-ablative procedure, you shouldn't see any, any shrinkage. That's not to say in the future you won't have a little bit of it, which we're talking about in, in like fractional, uh, like uh, 1540, would that be something that a fractional 1540 for a skin tightening? Not, not so much. I mean, with that, we're not really looking for shrinkage on skin. You're actually getting more edema. Okay. So what we're saying is in vascular lesions, pigmented lesions, tattoo removal, and hair removal, we don't want to see skin shrinkage with that. Correct. That's, okay. The warning signs not limited to laser treatments. It can also occur during IPL, RF, ultrasound, or even plasma exposure. So in some cases, these, these technologies are not just limited to lasers. Um, sometimes it's difficult to see. Again, the author likes to show this picture. There's, with that Nikolsky sign, there was also some shrinkage. Difficult to see. Um, it's sort of a subtle thing. And in many cases, with a handpiece down and goggles on, you wouldn't see it at all. So what's a better uh, way to look at this? And that's what they, we get to things called a pucker sign. <laughs> so what the pucker sign is, is basically it's another more reliable indicator of skin shrinkage. Basically, the surface lines, there's sort of a, a radial pattern or circular pattern around the area of injury, regardless if it's a circle injury or a square injury. And in many cases, it's raised. Whenever we see radial lines like coming out like a sun starburst, mm -hmm. we know that we have, uh, this is pucker sign, and we basically have damage to the dermis. Um, you're going to see this in ablative laser resurfacing, but in most other settings, this is not what you want to see. Yeah, that's another reason if you see this, you're going to stop. Okay, how about the, the authors go on to cite and spend some time talking about the use of IPL for tattoo removal. Um, do we have, have you worked on any cases where IPL was used for tattoo removal? Um, I have worked on cases where an IPL was used for another procedure and they went over a tattoo. Well, they do, right? Um, but I remember on Shark Tank several years ago when they had that IPL device they were trying to sell for tattoo removal and I was screaming at the TV, don't do it, don't do it, don't buy it because you can't, there's there's a lot of different reasons why it wouldn't work. One, it's a, it's a blend of wavelengths, not one specific wavelength. Um, it's going to spread out in the tissue as opposed to be focused into the actual tattoo. And then it's not firing at the right speed. So it's not going to have a photoacoustic is going to just have thermal. If you use an IPL to do tattoo removal, you're going to jack them up. There's, there's, there's nothing good is ever going to come out of it. Let's talk about tissue ablation. So controlled tissue ablation is the goal during vaporization of, say, like verruque, uh, warts, moles, things that a dermatologist wants to get rid of. Uh, during laser resurfacing and sometimes during a, a blade of fractional resurfacing, um, during any non-ablative procedure, ablation of the skin should not be seen. So that seems sort of obvious, but 
if we're using a non-ablative laser, let's not see any ablation. Otherwise, we know we have the settings completely different. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I would assume that if you're being trained to do these uh, procedures with these machines that you'd know that. But it'd be surprising that if you've never seen the injury, that you wouldn't know it happened until you've seen one. Like when you first burn somebody, you know what it looks like then. But that first time is sort of like if you would have had that evidence in that sort of training in, in your educational, you could have avoided that that thing. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that if you're using a non-ablative machine and you see something that doesn't look like the normal endpoint that you're used to, how would that be a, a time to stop? Yes. Okay. Some of this is pretty obvious, but you'd be surprised in your cases that it's, it's these obvious things, especially from the management level and medical director level, is they're, they're removed from the, the treatment room. So in many cases, they almost have to overstate the obvious is what I'm doing, is to sort of make sure that that, that sort of warning and those general warnings are followed in the treatment room because uh, operators tend to get excited to want to do treatments and not want to send people home. Well, there's the other side of that, though. There are some some businesses that it's only sales driven. Yeah, it's not patient driven. And so the person will be sent back to the room to be with the technician and they're totally inappropriate. They've got a sunburn. They've got something, but the, the practice doesn't want to give up the money. Uh, from that particular treatment, even though it's not appropriate to do so. What I'm telling you is that it's going to cost you a lot more money to pay for an attorney and to pay their attorney bills and somebody like me than it would be to just turn it down. So um, when I look at the person that is pulling the trigger on the laser, they should have first right of refusal and not working on that person. Um, but it comes down to it, it usually is either a lack of training, if it's the technician, or if it's the manager of the front desk sending them back, it's a lack of training knowing that they're not supposed to be working on there, or it's money motivated. Sure. Yeah, I, I should have brought that up. In many cases, the practitioners almost put under pressure they have to make been. sure that the, that treatment's being done, in many cases, to the detriment of the patient. Yes, and I've, I've worked with a lot of technicians who have told me that if they don't do these procedures, they're going to get fired, and my answer to them was get fired. Because getting fired, it's easy to get another job when you don't have a lawsuit hanging over your head. That's true. Um, we're going to jump into yet another warning endpoint that the investigators took a look at, and that was charring. Not charro. Right? <laughs> Although charros sound really good. Yeah. It's basically when the energy uh, that's being applied to tissue um, you start to remove most of the water, you get a partial combustion of the tissue, actually the actual burning of the tissue. Uh, the surface becomes charred. Um, it consists of a fairly thin layer of black or dark brown carbon adhered to the tissue surface. Mm -hmm. And skin charring is generally associated with excessive thermal damage caused by improper use or malfunction of a resurfacing laser, conventional or fractional, or plasma devices. But you've also seen some charring from, from different devices. From hair reduction. Okay. And from the hair not being shaved properly before the person comes in and then going over it and you can see the hair actually char onto the skin. So here's a picture of charring, the arrow showing where the, uh, you can also see what else? Um, the pucker sign, you can see you that see radial, radial pattern around us. So mm -hmm. before the water dried out of that, there was the pucker sign. So they could have stopped that pucker sign that they did and then they went and charred it. Now, I will say that in many cases, like uh, at one point, um, you uh, decided to put a hole in your ex-husband's face with a particular laser device. I did not decide to put a <laughs> hole in his face. Well, that was a char mark, am I right? What happened? There was no, there was no time to react on that, right? You pulled the trigger and it was it already was done. Okay. okay, so like the first blister I ever caused was on the nose of my ex-husband. And back then, I did not mean it. 
I will not say right now if I did it again, I wouldn't mean it. Um, but it was, he had two ALR vessels, and the first one that I fired on, perfect. The second one I fired on, or I thought was perfect. The second one I fired on, as soon as I stepped on the foot pedal, it turned gray. And what it was, was my spot size was too large for the vessel. So I had a five millimeter spot size. But again, back then we didn't know that spot size affected the depth of penetration. So I not only hit that vessel, but I blew right past it down into the tissue underneath it. Now, interesting, the first spot that I did that he did not char turned into a blister too. So he ended up with two blisters um, and they were both five millimeters, but the first one didn't show up for a few hours. The second one showed up almost immediately. Okay. And he was fine. Put a little acetracin on it, it was good. So, chrysiasis. Say that word. five times fast. Chrysiasis. I'm just going to, that's just a hard word. Laser induced chrysiasis is a blue gray discoloration of the skin caused by acute switched laser exposure. And it only occurs in patients with a history of gold intake. So gold member would have an issue with this. Um, I think when we're talking about gold intake, well, a lot of folks um, that were on some sort of rheumatoid arthritis therapy um, had some gold therapy. There are some other things that gold becomes uh, one of the things that they ingest for therapeutic reasons. And what happens is, is that in a Q-switch laser, um, it, it basically interacts with those gold particles and causes what you see here, which is you know, discoloration. Yeah, and it would be something that you might want to include onto your health history, something that I've never seen on somebody's health history, but your intake forms is putting a little thing, have you ever uh, used uh, gold therapy or had, you know, ingested gold? Because if you have a Q-switch laser in your office, you might want to know ahead of time because up here, it doesn't look like they were doing anything with any tattoo removal. It could have been pigment because we're using Q-switch lasers for melasma right, and things right. like it's that. It's not necessarily tattoo removal. No, here. we're using it for lots of other treatments. So I would highly suggest adding that line to your intake form so you can take a look at it before you would do a full base of a Q-switch laser. Now how about immediate tattoo darkening? So basically what's going on here, you have um, a Q-switch laser, mm -hmm. and then we had some sort of permanent makeup with either ferric oxide or titanium dioxide as a component of that. So what happens? Um, well, it interacts with it and it turns it black. Okay. So one of the reasons that we don't do a lot of tattoo removal with permanent makeup is we don't know what's in the permanent makeup. Um, and if it's got ferric oxide or it's got titanium oxide, and we don't know that it's going to turn it black. Now, what they would do is start trying to lift that dark tattoo with subsequent laser treatments. The problem that you're going to have is it's going to scare the technician. They're not going to want to touch them. They go to anybody else. They're not going to want to touch them. So, I mean, what I've done in my practice, is if somebody wants um, permanent makeup removed, I don't do it. This would be one of those things where she doesn't like the color of her permanent makeup. Um, that's her problem. I don't want to make it my problem. Yeah, I would say that you use that state, statement all the time. Don't make somebody else's problem your own. If you're a practice owner or a medical director, that might be one of those bright line policies. You say, we just if they've had permanent makeup, we don't treat that area or even close to that area at all, regardless of of what the patient wants in that. It's just not worth the risk. It's not It's not worth it to me. Now, if somebody has a tremendous amount of experience in, in making this darker and then making it better, you might 
go there, but I wouldn't do that as my practice. And again, that would be something that the doctor, him, he or, she, she. Or his, she or himself would want to do on their own uh, without having a de designating that or delegating Correct. that to somebody else. Then you can make those decisions. I'm sure there's many cases, if something happened like this to this person, somebody's got to treat that. But I think that if we're looking at that, I, I would, I'd want to be someone who almost specialized in these types of things, has mm -hmm. experience doing it as a fellowship or something like that. Don't take this as your first case. Yeah. Or if you've never done it before, this would not be something to, to try to learn no. by doing. No. Uh, how about metallic gray blanching? Sort of a similar thing. Uh, we see this a lot when we're talking about vascular lesions, um, especially uh, the Alexandrite, NDAG, and diodes. Um, basically, when we're... Um, Put the energy into the, the vessel uh, it's going to darken there's an example of this this was using a 755 alexandrite for a port wine stain again these, this is a, probably an old case because this is not would be the, the laser of choice at this point um, but back then this is what it would look like so again these are the, the the reason why we're pointing out these things so if you see them and you've seen them before you can make the association like the concentration game that these types of things aren't normal a lot of times, uh, let's go back to some of the things that we talked about uh, in, a, in a prior segment. Um, when we're talking about laser lawsuits, in many cases, you'll have the technician make a decision of what it is when they see that and then not report that or not turn them over to a medical director. So this would be a case that if you see something like this, uh, in one case, you had someone say it was a first degree burn and, and it turned out it was not a first degree burn, right? Well, it wasn't a first degree burn and the person um, diagnosing it didn't have the authority to do that. Okay, so I think that's another important point. I wouldn't let anyone, if uh, since I'm a doc, unless you're a doctor level, which is the, the, what the medical board says can di actually diagnose, don't have anyone else diagnose either prior to the treatment or if there's something, an adverse event happens. You want them to be diagnosed by hopefully the medical director, and then sent to any sort of specialist who can actually make a true diagnosis. Because in a, in a lawsuit, when, you think, when these, di these diagnoses are thrown out by people who are not practitioners, it leads to quite a bit of liability. Well, not only that um, is a problem, but then I see compounding onto the problem that the technician diagnosed it, then they give them like Sylvadine or something that's a script, right. and now they're practicing medicine. Um, because they've given them a, a script and diagnosed. And what I tell people is like, and, and I've used it against people. It's like, you can't, you don't get to give them Silvadine because you you don't have the authority to do that. Um, then it becomes practicing medicine without a license and malpractice. Yeah, so you want to make sure that if, if you are the technician that's watching and you're doing these treatments that you go to your medical director to have the diagnosis and also if they need to write a script for something or give them some type of topical or antibiotics or things like that, you want them doing it. If you're the doc or the medical director, you want to make sure the people that are working underneath your license are not diagnosing and not giving um, uh, medicine or practicing medicine on your behalf. Before we wrap this up, I just want to go through a quick exercise. I'm a practitioner. Um, let's say I'm not a doctor and I'm a certified laser technician with several years experience and I have a new patient come in and for whatever reason, I use the settings that were what were given to me by the medical director. And it turns out that I witness and I look at something and I can see, let's say, Nikolsky's sign and some sign of, you know, of, of burning. What should happen from if you were going to make the policy for the, for the clinic owner and medical director, what steps should happen after that? How should this go down? What should happen next? Um, well, obviously, you're going to stop the treatment. Okay. 
Um, you're going to get, depending on how big of an adverse reaction it is, you may have your medical director see them immediately, or you may have them um, schedule an appointment to come back in and see your medical director. It, it is going to be a burden, things like that. I mean, you're going to be following hopefully what's in place, which is your adverse reaction protocol. So at my office, which we have, would be what? Well, it's going to be applying cool okay. something. It's not going to be applying ice. It's going to be applying cold compresses, trying to take the heat down um, from it. And then whatever your medical director says to do, I mean, let's everybody's going to have something. So I'm going to walk through that. Let's, let's do it like it's just a sample one. So you've applied the cold compress. What about things like photography or, or documenting the injury? Well, I like to have, I would suggest everybody documenting with photographs and we're going to be doing a, a video on that um, before the treatment and then immediately after the treatment because you can do let's say you do a great treatment you don't notice any signs of anything and then they go out and they get in a hot tub and now they burn the heck out of themselves because they forgot that they weren't supposed to go into a hot tub um, so i like photographs to document before and also after to protect my rear end um, what else could they could be used for though? Besides the liability, we can also show the progression of the treatment too. And that's a, that's a, sort of the marketing benefit of the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, you can use it for that, but it, I mean, the bottom line is is I always want to protect my practice. Um, you're going to be filling out some type of an incident form, and and all practices should have that in their like their laser safety program binder. You should have your incident forms and you should have your adverse reaction protocol in case the medical director isn't on site. Um, you're going to invite them to come back in and see your medical director. You're going to document what you did with them and what you told them. One of the things that I don't, would not do, because I mean, they sign informed consent and hopefully you have an informed consent you're using that is going to say that these different things can happen. Um, because clients come in and they can be lying about their sun exposure. Or just, or not know it. Like they, they go to a baseball game and don't count that as sun exposure. Yeah, and I've got a lot of people that run at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning in Arizona in the summertime and don't count it as sun exposure and the sun is up at 4.30 um, at this time of year. So you want to to make sure that they are taking being taken care of by your medical director, but you also don't want to place blame on yourself. So this is not the time where I tell people, it's like, you know, don't be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I screwed up. No, we don't say anything like that. We don't say anything at all. We don't say anything at all because... I'm not qualified to, to make give an opinion of this, but my medical director would yes. be happy. And if the medical director is on site, you would probably grab that person. I would. If they were not on site, depending on the extent of injury and the policy, it would be a time to either immediate contact before the patient leaves so they can actually either Skype or talk with that patient, mm -hmm. or an event that you can't get a hold of the medical doctor right away, and it's a, a, an operation, let's say it's a, you're in a facility where it's in Arizona and you're doing hair removal where the medical doctor doesn't need to be on site, which would be normal, then we'd, we'd want to have a scheduled time very soon where that, that client needs a medical director. Um, these types of incidences, these types of, of protocols and policies and these binders you're talking about. Um, for those pract uh, practice owners, medical directors um, who are watching the show, you offer that as, as a service, am I right? 
to aesthetic advisor that you you go into practices and you mm -hmm. set up their binders, you you set up their policies, and as well as if they're not a medical director, you can uh, teach people. You're licensed in the state of Arizona um, for those states that need medical directors. Um, in Arizona, you can license them for Arizona. For those states who don't have the requirement, but uh, someone wants for their insurance purposes to become a medical director, you can also certify them mm -hmm. to do that um, through medical director connector. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, so we have the ability to do those sorts of things. Not so much a commercial plug, because, but in reality, there's a lot of folks who want to do all these things. They want to put these policies in place, but they don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's just easier to hire somebody and to just put it in place for you, train you on it, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. When you look at these policies, let's, I'm just giving an example. When ARA came in to inspect your facility, this is the uh, Arizona Radiation Regulatory Agency, they looked at your binary, looked at your facility. How long did it take them to get through their inspection? 15 minutes. I had a hair appointment. So what we're saying is, is that in many cases, you can reduce a lot of the liability by having someone who knows what to look for. You don't know what you don't know in these scenarios. You can watch these videos. You can spend time with this. But in many cases, unless you've been through adverse reactions and adverse events and seen them go down, see what can happen, and then, then on the legal side of this, you don't know how to protect yourself quite as well as if someone who, who does do that. So I would, if you need questions, if you have questions or just need advice on this, I would probably say probably contact Chris and get a sense of what is it that you're looking for and how can, how can, how can you sort of tie into that. Uh, to, wrap, <laughs> to wrap this up, <laughs> takeaway messages are, is it, these warning endpoints and these clinical endpoints are there, um, they're established in the, the literature, they're established by you know, professionals as a standard that when we see these things, they cause us to stop and reflect and decide, is this what we wanna do? Can we stop and adjust settings? Um, as Chris pointed out, when you have an adverse event, even if you're going to adjust settings, that was going to be for the next treatment if there's going to be one. Not, we're not going to have an adverse event, make an adjustment, and continue treating. We, we stop everything. It's sort of like a game's over sort of thing. Um, in, in the cases where the clinical endpoint is what we want, in many cases, maybe we need to turn our settings up to reach that clinical mm -hmm. endpoint. So it's not always about reducing the setting, it's getting knowing what to look for and knowing when, when it's gone too far. And these are the things that help us visually uh, stop, can in some cases make what could be a, a much bigger injury much smaller. And, and I know that there's, there's different schools that offer training um, for, for lasers. One of the things that I would say is you want to know everything about the training, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I used to get in trouble where I used to work for telling people that people could be blinded by lasers. My my inclination on this is as long as you know how to determine if it's an adverse reaction or it's not an adverse reaction, that's always a good thing. You want to be able to know if you're going to be you know doing something that's going to put your client in harm's way. This is a fantastic field. It's super fun to work in uh, cosmetic lasers. But there's also a big responsibility and you need to know what the adverse reactions are and what they look like. So if you're going to get to that point that you stop yourself or you know that you've created one. Exactly. And I think in, a, in upcoming videos and upcoming segments, we're going to talk about things like machine choices, wavelength choices. So we have less of these things that happen. Mm -hmm. And because this is an advanced course, we're going to start looking at combination modalities, mm -hmm. what to do first, what to stack, what not to do. Um, from a liability standpoint, though, we wanted to cover what, what these things look like. So if you see them, you know to stop. Exactly. Thanks for listening. And be sure to tune in for more exciting episodes.
Evidence-Based Aesthetics invites you to join Evidence-Based Aesthetics Facebook group. Medical Education Resources summarizes the latest research in micro-device therapies and develops patient communication materials that allow clinicians to rapidly and effectively integrate micro-devices into their practices. Find out more at medicaleducationresources.net.